there are things that we can learn just based on a few little hints because so many people do things in so many similar ways. And so the ability to get that hint, that little digital breadcrumb, and match it to a model very quickly so that you can move on to the next best action is really, really critical. The question for me is why don't average and underperformers see that as clearly as winners do? You're listening to Retail Remix, your inside access to candid conversations with the people shaping retail's future. Here's your host, Alicia Esposito. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special live episode of the Retail Remix podcast. Hopefully you know me by now. I'm Alicia Esposito, and I have joining me two Brian's. Brian Kilcourse, Managing Partner of RSR, and Brian McGlynn, GM of e-commerce of Coveo. Gentlemen, thank you both so much for taking the time out. It's great to have you. Well, thank you for having me. It's great. Likewise. Thanks for inviting us on. Yeah, I couldn't resist because you have some fantastic and extremely relevant research that I'm excited to get into with you, all about the digital acquisition methods of retail winners. Acquisition is a very big topic right now. So Brian, on the Coveo side, curious, what inspired you to dig deeper into this topic and, of course, bring in RSR for some assistance there? Certainly where we are as a company, Coveo, uh, publicly traded, actually announced their earnings yesterday, uh, had some information there. But altogether, what we do, we provide a relevance platform for retailers, for brands that want to sell direct to customers. And really the area we go in is we work to do two things. One, go in and help our customers optimize the way they interact with their customers, remove friction from purchase processes through content recommendations and through search. And others, we help service their customers after sale by providing ways to reduce friction and getting information they need in that. So what's important for us and really it prompted us to reach out and partner with RSR was to really understand the state of the market understand our customers, really take a pulse on, on what they're seeing on the key problems that, that are out there. And that's where it was, it was very interesting. Some things confirmed, some things were really eye-opening as well. That's great. So Brian, to that end, I agree, RSR always does such a great job of kind of benchmarking the industry, right? Kind of identifying the priorities, but also the challenges, the inhibitors that are maybe preventing some organizations from embracing certain trends or taking certain leaps in terms of innovation or or customer experience. For those who, I don't know who wouldn't know RSR by now, but that's a different conversation. But for those who maybe don't know your methodology or how you go about getting those benchmarks and assessing the market, can you share a little bit about what that process entails, and maybe what your particular objectives were for this research. Yeah, well, that's a great question. First of all, we study the business use case that drives the adoption of technology in retail. So there's a bias in our research, and the bias is that information and technology is what differentiates what we call retail winners or overperformers and everybody else. And it turns out to be almost always true. So we study the business use cases. There's plenty of great research in the industry about technology A versus technology B, you know, who's on the magic quadrant, who's on the wave and those kinds of things. The world did not need yet another one of those kind of research firms. But what we thought was lacking and we still think needs to be brought forward are those practical business use cases that drive adoption. So we studied the business challenge, which is almost always the external pressure that's causing retailers to consider an issue. The opportunities, the second 
part of our methodology is really how overperformers flip those challenges and make them opportunities. The third one we focus on is organizational inhibitors. And, and the way I would say this is it's the enemy within. It's if you know you have got a challenge and you know there's an opportunity for you, then why aren't you doing something? And this is actually one of the more fascinating parts of almost every report that we do. And then finally, in a broad swipe, what are the technology enablers that enable retailers to address the challenge or seize the opportunity? So what we've discovered over the years is overperformers that we call winners tend to do things a little differently. They do all the basics really well, but they also have a different outlook. And that outlook is what usually results in a series of recommendations that we make to retailers. Now, in this particular case, we've been studying e-commerce, I think, since 2009. And we've seen e-commerce grow from a standalone channel to a channel that's integrated with traditional operations. And now we're seeing the very beginnings of a third generation of e-commerce that is really where e-commerce capabilities are integral to the entire operation. So you would think instead of it being a siloed application, bits of e-commerce are in everything, are in every commercial interaction, whether it's a consumer or with another business partner. So for example, if you need to get a payment widget, you can get a payment widget. If you need to get a product lookup widget, you can get a product lookup widget, all those kinds of things. If you need to do an optimized search, you can get it in aisle or on your mobile phone or on your e-commerce site or perhaps in social media. All of these things, maybe using your Alexa device at home, all of these things are starting to emerge very, very quickly. And that's because I think it was accelerated by COVID, but consumers now use the digital experience as the front door to their total shopping experience. And the majority of consumers do that all the time. I'm sure everybody on this call does it all the time. So we wanted to see how retailers are differentiating in that world when e-commerce is expanding its capabilities, its use cases, and its adaptability to new conditions almost as we speak. Very fascinating. And I agree. It, it seems like that digital component is just ingrained in, in so much in everything that we do today. So I'm curious, I mean, did RSR or even Coveo, even since this was a collaboration, kind of come into this exercise or this process with some maybe preconceived notions or hypotheses around what potential outcomes could be? Or do you try to kind of go into this process, letting the survey pool do the talking and use their guidance around inhibitors and the tech implementation? I'm curious if there were any starting points that guided your earlier decisions. Well, I'll kick in. And of course, we were very pleased to be found by Coveo. That was thrilling. So we were very excited to work with them. We had some early inklings that we needed to study this with a from a study that we do and we've done for the last five years on website speed tests. And it's been a fun project with another client. We enjoyed doing it. But what we discovered uh, when we started to do 360 degree looks, asking the retailer and asking the consumer about issues, we found out that there was a disconnect. And the disconnect is that retailers, I don't think, realize or appreciate how often consumers start their shopping journey with Google. As a matter of fact, in the research, when we ask retailers about it, they think that the, the number one stopping place for consumers is Amazon. That, in fact, isn't true. It's Google. And so they've already lost step, if you will, an opportunity to talk to the consumer in the first person. They've already lost that chance. And so we wanted to study that a little bit more. Turns out, that Coveo did too. So Brian, I'll let you take it from there. 
Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I mean, if you look at it, when we reached out to RSR, I mean, we had a lot of preconceived notions and some very, very strong in data based on our existing customers. And that's an area where, given, for example, when, when you work with Coveo, actually, we're talking to Colaris uh, in another hour or so about what their journey has been with Coveo. And in a similar case, they'll talk about uh, they sell shoes, they own famous footwear, they own other brands, Sam Edelman and, and others, and they've went through a journey to digitize. And for their journey to digitize, uh, really even what Brian was talking about is their collapsing of the channel from an omni-channel to a unit channel, where the whole idea is the digital experience is the starting part where they'll go through and bring clients on board. So very fascinating digitization and modernization that's yielded very well for them. But really the part of it is throughout the process and technology, we partner with companies like them in, in our real uh, raison d'etre is for going in and using advanced AI. We wholeheartedly believe you cannot scale without AI. And we have data all over to prove that. And that's the case to make it work. And to make AI work, we have to attach trackers. We have to attach all kinds of behavioral parts to a site because we're not depending on third-party cookies and a lot of that. We need to go in and look, how are people interacting? So with that, we gain insight. There's no question we gain insight. Some of the insights we've seen, once again, in our own view with a customer We'll see conversion rates when there's search. We'll see conversion rates when there isn't. And, and the issue to correlate, we absolutely see the direction of when shoppers come in, it's a Google search. They're searching for a brand. And that's what customers are looking at over again, getting that to where it's visible and promoted. The danger, and as Brian certainly talked about in one of the moments, is, is one, once you search for it, it's, it's the Wild West of who's bidding for it. You can have Colaris bidding for a brand. You can have Amazon bidding for a brand. You can have the manufacturer bidding at this point. And those who have the best conversion rates are the ones that are able to bid more, gain the customers. So if you show up in the organic searches or you show up in the bidding, is that heightened focus of going in and making certain that when you go in, your customer lands on the site, friction's removed, promotions are brought forward, everything is done in lockstep within milliseconds to convert the customer. But to really your, your original question and really the root of it, was this something we certainly saw the conversion rate high when people knew what they wanted and they came in. But what was really eye-opening for us was the degree. We knew it was out there, but just the degree that a substantial number, more than half, were starting their journey this way and what the importance is around that. So I thought that was interesting. Yeah. And I definitely want to get into, I think the heart of our conversation will be that on-site branded experience, but I do want to make sure we do touch on that SEO and that search component, because I do think it is so important. There was actually some interesting commentary around retailers' investment in SEO, and they feel like despite those investments, they're maybe not getting the returns that they hoped for that was expected. I'm curious why this is the case? Is it because it is becoming so competitive? And if so, are there any ways that retailers can kind of close that gap and kind of get maximum return on that SEO side? Well, it's a great question. First of all, I think we need to dispel any notion that people are not going to start with Google. I think that the horse is out of the barn when it comes to that. And based on uh, these two studies, we know that something around 60% or more consumers start their journey there. The question is what happens immediately after that? And consumers are leaving lots of clues in various speeches I've given over time. We call those the digital breadcrumbs, like Hansel and Gretel. And they tell us an awful lot about what they're looking for and why they're looking for it. So think about your experience in the digital domain, and let's compare it to an old-fashioned store. When you think about the way we would work with a store, you get familiar with the way it's laid out, where the products are. If you're in the grocery store, you go down the 
the pasta aisle or you go down the fresh produce aisle or whatever aisle you want to start with because you're trying to solve a lifestyle problem. In websites, consumers are more often than not told to start at aisle one and start weaving their way through the product category until they finally get to the thing that they want. And that's irrelevant. It doesn't matter to them. As a matter of fact, it becomes an irritant really fast. So just for fun, when we were doing the study, I went on to one of the fastest sites from that other study I mentioned to you and said, okay, I'm going to experience this brand. I'm going to go on. And it's not hard to figure out what I'm interested in. First of all, it's fairly obvious I'm a male. It's fairly obvious that I'm over a certain age and because of the kind of clues I leave. And yet I still had to go through the merchandise hierarchy. What am I looking for? Men's, women's, children's, or close out, those kinds of things. And then I say, what am I looking for? Shoes, pants, shirts, or coats. And then I work my way down. And finally, after the fifth or sixth click, I get to to the product information pages that I'm actually interested in. Now, the thing that's really ironic is I actually am a frequent shopper for this one retailer, and they already know a bunch about me. They know what I buy. Typical middle-aged white guy, right? I keep buying the same things over and over and over again on a certain cadence. This is not hard to figure out. So the question is, how do you get me quickly to the solution that I'm more likely to look for? And then secondarily, how can you incentivize me to look at adjacencies, if you will, for other things in the collection that might be interesting for me? So if I'm buying walking shoes, maybe I need some new socks too. Those kinds of things. And it's not hard to do if you set your mind to doing it. The technologies will will let you do those things. So what retailers need to do now is they need to take what's become a ubiquitous experience, pretty much the same for every retailer. And they need to turn it into something, first of all, that tells the brand story in a compelling way. And secondarily, to move the consumer to the desired solution as quickly as it can be affected. That doesn't mean that you can stop spending on SEO and, and Google, because that, as I said, that course has lost the barn if you need to deal with that reality. But it's what you do next, which is really, really important. Yeah, and Brian, I'm really glad you brought that up because there was one set of data points that made me pause a little bit. So 83% of respondents said that their most important priority was acquiring more traffic, while 59% said they wanted to drive more on-site conversions. I feel like this kind of aligns with what you were referring to, that like you get to the site and but everyone kind of has the same experience. There's no tailoring of the journey based on past behaviors or how engaged a consumer may be with a particular brand. Are retailers just like focusing on this acquisition piece and getting as many people as possible to the site, but aren't emphasizing that actual journey and that actual experience as much as they should? Well, that's certainly our opinion. And I'll let Brian from Coveo talk about that too. But yeah, the retailers want to acquire customers and who doesn't? I mean, that's like motherhood and apple pie. Why wouldn't you want to acquire customers? But you need to think about what happens right after that. What do you want the experience to be? And just, again, I'll go back to the old fashioned store. When I was an executive at a retail company, the stores had a mezzanine. And we used to go up to the mezzanine, which had the smoke glass that you couldn't see through if you're a consumer. And we would watch how people would use the store. And that was important, as corny as it sounds, because you could see that customers worked the store a certain way. They knew how to get what they needed to get quickly. Well, retailers need to do the same kind of a thing in their digital domain. They need to understand how consumers are using the digital store and favor those behaviors in a way that accentuates the value of the brand. 
Brian, I know you have a take on this. <laughs> I mean, absolutely. You look at it. Some of the important variables we look at with the retailer is going through on certainly there's acquisitions. We look at 83% of customers wanted to get more traffic. There's an acquisition cost. The items that go into the acquisition cost on top of that, we've got the conversion. So you look at how much you convert. Third variable, you look at average order value. And then ultimately that's going to translate to the most important variables, profit. With profit, you can go in and buy more ads. You can gain more market share. You can really focus on that. And that's the key part that we see in, in really going in is how do we go in and ultimately maximize a profitable experience for a retailer to where they're selling the best mix, they're adding on the components, and they're going in and really providing that that opportunity at the same time, provide that value to a customer. And that's when it's gonna drive the velocity, that's gonna drive the conversion. And finding the two where they mix is really the important part where machine learning comes in at scale. Now, as Brian mentioned, I, I remember my time, that was my first job as well was in retail, where we'd sit and uh, right in high school, I'd go in, we'd be up with the mezzanine, you'd watch people, and sometimes they're watching to see if people take a five finger discount, or as others watching their behavior with new parts around there as well. And it was an interesting part where that whole idea back in the day, certainly in an open loop world, where we'd look at look at merchandising mixes, we'd look at components, there was an area around it. Now you go forward in, in the analog world, uh, some organizations, certainly when you think about the pinnacle of the best experience, you think about clothes shopping at some organizations, you look at where Nordstrom, for example, is famous for, is a concierge or that white glove treatment where you walk in the door and someone can go in and they'll know, they'll guess your size, they'll guess what you may be interested in. You'll probably end up leaving, spending about twice as much as what you expected by buying a lot of add-ons and other parts. And you actually feel good about it because you got something out of there. So all said, it's an area where you walk out the door and all those things go in. So in, in the analog world, it's certainly something to aspire to. It works. It generates value. It removes friction. It goes in and gets people what they want. Digital's tough. And that's really where we go into is going in especially when you have all the this, this signals and other components that are out there that can go in. So we, when you think about it, a digital bits are coming into your store at this time. And you have to guess why they're there. Are they browsing? Are they buying? Is it seasonal buying? What's Why do they land on this part? And what goes good with those particular items? And you think about all the permutations and opportunities that are out there to serve a customer. It leaves a, a lot where those that have tried the traditional lineups traditional approaches of walkthrough with merchandising, it was effective 10 years ago and tools were there to do it. With AI, the bar has been lifted and Amazon's absolutely, and Google have done the same. You think even Wayfair with 2,300 plus developers, they have the data, they have the means to do that. And clearly in our view where, where we've come in, we've seen as a democratization of that, seeing, okay, there is a need for retailers that wanna be relevant, wanna curate, wanna provide that end-to-end -end experience but really in, in the point of needing to do that. And that's really where certainly what we see from that part on, on digital and what the overall experience is aspiring to be and what the value and the data points are that are out there. So a lot there, but uh, say, Alicia, what, any thoughts on that as well? <laughs> yeah, no, I, I totally agree with your point that like the bar has kind of been lifted, right? There are tools out there. The capabilities are there. I think it's just a matter of retailers and brands determining what that journey looks like for their customers and determining how to best tailor that experience. And I will get into the inhibitors in a second, but I don't want to be too negative. So let's start with the opportunities first. I know a lot of the respondents to the research said personalized offers and promotions, personalized product recommendations, pretty much the same things that we've been covering and talking about probably for a few years now. So I guess the question is, 
any overlooked opportunities, any new ways or new approaches to using that data, using all of those signals, Brian, which I think signals are, are a great word that the leaders may be using, but maybe everyone else possibly isn't and there, there's a gap to close there? Well, it's interesting. I mean, we have been talking about these things for a, a long time, but there's still a big gap between how winners see them and how everybody else sees them. And I think what we came to was that winners aren't seeing something that the others aren't seeing. It's really a question of how much they emphasize it. So, for example, product recommendations. We take that for granted because of what Amazon has been able to accomplish in the marketplace. But 72% of winners think that that's a very important functionality versus only 63% of others. I want to ask those others, why not? Why don't you think that's important? Enabling community interaction between shoppers, that's more important to retail winners than others. And this is going to get to be a big deal because we're starting to see e-commerce widgets show up in streaming social media. So, for example, on Instagram and things like that. Personalized product suggestions and offers. Again, winners see this, uh, more winners see this than others. And it's, it's a little surprising, quite frankly. To Brian's point about using AI, one of the things that's a little bit helpful about us humans is that we are fairly predictable creatures. It's the old Dunn Humby story from grocery. If somebody is offering, uh, is looking for white wine, you can have some idea about what kind of meats they're going to buy for a dinner. If they're looking for red wine, then it's really more about the vintage and, and the type of grape and those kinds of things. So there are things that we can learn just based on a few little hints because so many people do things in so many similar ways. And so the ability to get that hint, that little digital breadcrumb, and match it to a model very quickly so that you can move on to the next best action is really, really critical. The question for me is why don't average and underperformers see that as clearly as winners do? We've been talking about it for a few years. So there's just a certain reticence about that. And we actually saw this in the research that uh, average and underperformers are very nervous about even experimenting with these things. They need to get over that for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, to that end, that hesitancy to experiment, I mean, that, that seems to be a cultural issue probably, right? I mean, are there any other internal inhibitors that may be preventing these companies from looking at things similarly to those retail leaders and winners. I'm sure there prob there's probably a technical side of it too, but what really stood out to you? Well, there's that hesitancy to experiment. There's a long and let's call it a well-justified reason for that. When you think about how much retailers really spend on technology, they don't build things to throw them away. Like a technology company might have, they might have several different projects looking for the most effective way to move forward with their product design, and they'll abandon bad ideas. Retailers tend not to abandon ideas very willingly. So they'll, they'll spend an awful lot of time trying to come up with a good idea so that the bad idea never is even let into the process. And then they will spend very conservatively to get that thing in the, into production. That's an old habit. And it's bound to the fact that retailers just don't spend very much as a percent of sales on their technology. They just don't. And they never have. Now, should they? Well, I'm a recovering CIO, so yeah, of course. <laughs> but winners don't have that same kind of reticence. We used to joke that one of the things you'd never find on a retail P&L is R&D. You'd never find a number like that. But you know, some of the big successful companies do, in fact, spend an awful lot on R&D. 
and they believe in experimentation. And then part of experimentation is understanding that some ideas are just bad and you're going to have to throw them away. And that's good. It's a good thing you found that out. What retailers can do now with some of the companies that are using advanced technologies to make e-commerce an interesting and differentiating experience is you can take advantage of the fact they have whole teams of people who think of these things all day long. That's their job. So Brian of Coveo talked about the AI data scientists they have on board. Well, they have a lot more AI scientists than any retailer or any normal retailer will ever have. So why not take advantage of that? Ask them how to, how to uh, innovate with some of these new capabilities. And you will find that they're very happy to tell you that. They'll talk to you about it. What a nice transition, Brian, <laughs> to that end. I'm sure you've had your fair share of conversations with retail teams, have walked through tests, implementations. I mean, how do you kind of navigate any of that hesitancy or I guess some of that innate fear of change or fear to throw things away, as Brian so eloquently stated? We live and breathe this every day. And that's really the, the interesting part is as, as a software SaaS company, we provide solutions and technology. We have a large sales force ourselves and marketing to look for retailers, among others, to come in and really improve their digital conversion, improve their digital experience. And part of that is really that the process and the drivers to go in at this part. It, we see some that are early adopters that have really gone in and tried a more bespoke approach and others that have got in and really uh, improving. And there is a case, certainly we look at it, we don't push rope. There are retailers that we talk to that are not interested in looking at technology or adopting it late. And realistically, a lot of them don't exist now. And that's just the firm reality is that the market is changing. The market is telling what's needed. Amazon, the toothpaste is out of the tube. The horse is out of the gate. It's not going back. And this is the way people have been trained is that we are going to buy a certain way and expect it. So we, it's actually part of our, our business. We work to educate customers. We work and really what we educate our own sales team and looking as for leaders in the industry. So we look at industry in many cases, it may be a third generation family where the third generation is taking over and saying, look, it's not about retail where e-commerce was a, a 13% non-profitable revenue generator with maybe a tiny percentage of the P&L. It's like, no, we're going to collapse the channels. So I, I look at it, we're big in the DIY space. And certainly one of the DIY providers, uh, their view is, look, this digital experience, it's not about a buying a bunch of two by fours to have shipped to my house just for fun. I'm going to walk through the store and I'm going to use this device to go and find what I need because it's going to remove friction from the physical. Or I can sit at home, look for items, find the inventory. Now I've got a pick list of what I need to get to. So it, it really comes into where it's gotten ingrained and being used and thought about. And that's really the point where, where we look at it. I mean, our view, we certainly were a SaaS company. We provide AI. We've developed technology and developed algorithms to really understand behavior and use that to, to maximize what our customers can do with it. And part of it is finding the right retail partners. Is there strong executive leadership that is saying, look, we are under siege. We need to be relevant. We know what we do good. We get boxes, we fill shelves, we create a curated experience by finding the best suppliers and bringing that in. And then finding the bay at this point, it wouldn't be a retailer it's just like them trying to build everything themselves and build their own product to sell. Some do that successfully, others will curate. And that's really where we look at it is by, by coming in. And that's really the whole focus of our company is democratizing that, saying, okay, if it's Macy's, an organization that size, or a Home Depot, 
or some of the behemoths and Walmart and others will have the wherewithal to go in and hire 500 data scientists and developers. And that's really the kind of army you need to build the kind of sophistication to compete with the giants. And realistically, if you're a regional hardware store, if you're a regional grocer or a regional organization, you have to partner. And it really comes into someone who can go in and, and build a platform and leverage on that. But the other part, kind of back to your original question, what Brian talked about is vision. And really what was eye-opening in their study was it was about 93% from what I remember of executives in retail said they were going to adopt AI in 18 months. My question is, okay, is it going to hire somebody who has an AI description on their resume? Or are they going to embrace AI in a democratized manner to bring the best of AI? In? And that's, that's going to be real interesting to look at as to what that is. Let me comment on that for just a moment. We call those Southwest Airlines Magazine data points. And you can almost follow the buzz. Somebody on an airplane flight read in a magazine that AI is the next hot thing. And for years, you just had your earnings call yesterday, Brian. So you know what it's like to deal with New York. But for years, the thing that you needed to put into your earnings statement somehow was the word optimization. Because it would cause all the lights to go off. AI is one of those things now. It causes all the lights to go off. And that's good energy. It has to be made pragmatic and it has to be made, it has to be democratized because as you say, your average, you know, $250 million fashion retailer is not going to be able to afford an army of AI data scientists, just not possible. But another point that you made, I want to kind of emphasize is you talked a little bit about the fact that this is really, I don't think you use these words, I'll put these words in your mouth. This is being consumer led. This whole adoption curve is being driven by the consumer. It's not being driven by retailers or tech firms. Uh, the consumers are adopting new technologies because they want their life to be better. The perfect example is an old one. It's the iPhone. When the iPhone came out, remember when it came out? Right at the height of the recession. You know, we were all getting slammed by the recession. And out comes this really cool device. But it wasn't just a phone. It was a gateway to a platform to a better way of living. So suddenly consumers could find the right solution to their lifestyle needs anywhere in the world. They could look at videos as to how to use it once you got it. They could do all these kinds of things. So in the same vein, consumers are telling us what they want e-commerce to be like. They're very happy to outsource a lifestyle issue to somebody that they can trust. So the question is, do you trust them to do it? And retailers need to build that basis of trust. One of the ways you can do it is come to the answer to the question before the consumers actually ask the question. It elevates the conversation to, oh, you get me, don't you? This is exciting. Okay, let's go further. Let's go to the next step together. So is that what's required? You know, I'm thinking big picture trends and issues that are really top of mind right now. And everybody's talking about how do we get more ownership over the customer experience? How do we get more of that first and, and zero party data? And there was a staggering statistic, only 5% of shoppers log into retailer sites while shopping. And I think that like notion of like, actually the consumer actively raising their hand saying, it's me, I'm here. Like, I want you to know I'm here <laughs> doing things. Is that idea of designing this experience in a way that consumers want with the consumer in mind, is that what's required to get that hand raised? Like, it feels like a chicken or the egg type thing, but I feel like as more retailers and brands prioritize this, I feel like we need to kind of pinpoint the issues and figure out how can they best get that trust and get that buy-in. I mean, 
I'll leave that to both of you who wants to tackle that first because I have a feeling there are some layers well, there's there. there's a lot. Let me start out with Frank and talk about the technology. <laughs> you don't have to identify yourself as an individual in order to start getting personalized value. And Brian can talk a lot about that. We've had these great conversations about it. But from the consumer perspective, you have to give them a reason to identify themselves other than I need name from a credit from a debit or a credit card. So there has to be a reason. And consumers have gotten very suspicious of having their data snitched on them and misused. I just had this experience just yesterday, and it's so irritating. I was looking for something that I know that I have never looked for before. <laughs> You're going to laugh. It's a push-through nylon rivet. Okay, how often does a guy like me look for a push-through nylon rivet to fix a metal panel on a heater? That within the hour, I was getting pushed through nylon rivet ads on Facebook. I don't like that. I really don't like that. And I'm pretty sure most people don't like it. So so you have to give them a reason to identify themselves to you. And the first thing you need to impress upon them is that you're trustworthy. And the second thing is you have to help them get to a relevant answer to their lifestyle need really quickly. So, Brian, you mentioned hardware stores. People don't go into hardware stores to buy hammers and, and screwdrivers. They go into hardware stores because they want to build a deck or fix a door or install a new sink. They have a problem, <laughs> and, and they would love to outsource that problem to you. I used to love going into the local Ace Hardware because I used to call it the cult of the three-fingered carpenter. I'd be buying a, a light switch for a buck and a half, very low cost. And some guy, an ex-tradesperson, would spend 20 minutes and try to explain to me how not to electrocute myself. And for $1.50, I really valued that. I really valued that. So the question is, how can you do that in the digital domain? And that's over, over to you, Brian. I think that's a lead for you to talk about it. Yeah, absolutely. You look at it in with Facebook, certainly under scrutiny in the EU and others uh, around uh, just data sharing. It's a case where data privacy is certainly at a heightened area. GDPR regulations, California regulations, we have all kinds of other regulations that are out there. So that's one vector of it is people are getting more cautious with their data. The other part, and actually, Brian, you talked about it the last time, your comment about a $250 million a year retailer and going into is data. So data, the giants dealing with data, for them, is easy. For them, they get billions and billions. I shouldn't say easy. It's part they're able to do is they have billions of data points and transactions. Amazon gets logins and they get the cookie, then they continue going through. So they're in it. They're a competitive advantage in that part. So the problem you come into is like, okay, one, how do you create machine learning models that don't need that massive amount of data? Two, how do you customize an experience when somebody hasn't logged in. So as an area we came up with, we call it product to vector. And product to vector is really, I shouldn't say we call it that, that's really the technology we've applied, taking product and putting embeddings around that in a multi-dimensional model. And the whole idea is what it means we can predict with very high certainty buyers versus browsers, what products are related based on a person's experience. Is someone is shopping for shoes because the runner is someone shopping for shoes because they want something to wear to go outside. Is someone shop? Is someone buying carrots because they're a vegetarian? Is someone buying carrots because they're cooking turkey and they want to have carrots with that? Or is price consciousness? Or is someone taking the subway because they believe in public transit? Or is it a case that they don't have a car? There's clues along the way. And as you bounce through that particular space, you're in a position where you can personalize and really understand the user. 
And that's part of where the technology we've developed in really democratizing AI and, and, and providing all the profit boosting that we do for our customers is really going in there in that analog part. All those clues are there in the analog world. Someone walks in and in case the three-fingered carpenter cult, as it was, uh, as Brian mentioned, where someone can go in and talk and give you an, a, a view about here's where things were and here's where how to use particular items. So the whole part that we come back to is tech. This is where we've looked at technology to advance and say, how do we get this out there? And once again, some retailers really get it. There are some retailers that really get it. And that's where we like to partner in and say, all right, let's take their data and use this to drive the experience. By it. But really with those constraints, people holding onto their data, and then taking a technology approach where there's not a lot of data on a smaller retailer that still needs the same exact amount of firepower that Amazon has, but to do it in their own way. Oh, that's excellent. So gentlemen, we're at the top of our time together, and I feel like we can go for hours and hours and hours. There are so many interesting takeaways from this research. But if you were to distill maybe one key finding or one key takeaway that you would want to make sure that our, our viewers right now take with them, possibly bring back to their team or apply to their business? I mean, what would it be? And again, this could be a data point. It could be a takeaway, just some sort of call to action, I guess, to, to round out our conversation. Brian, on the RSR side, how about you? Yeah, it's actually our top recommendation in the report, and it doesn't involve technology at all, believe it or not. It's retailers need to ask themselves, what do they want the brand experience to be? Uh, what are the differentiating qualities? And here's the clue. Don't lie to yourself. You have to be honest. Why do people come to your brand? What is the thing, the, the diamond that they're after when they come and visit you? And build the experience around those things that customers actually give you credit for. And that's where I would start. And surprisingly, retailers kind of know that intuitively, but they don't ask themselves the question. It seems kind of dumb, right? What do we really mean to the consumers? You need to answer that question. That's where I'd start. Very important. Brian, how about you? Yeah, look at it. This is an area, Brian's absolutely bang on with that, where understanding your brand, where do you stand? How do you differentiate? You've got to have your core business. And then really looking at it and embracing AI and understanding it for what it is. It is a change. There's no question about that. And that's the big thing we look at is we first got to pick the right partner. And then above and beyond that, there's an area where generally merchandisers are used to thinking about the grand average, about how do you go in, how do you have that static experience, but really embracing a tool set to where AI is going to make decisions. You'll have to teach the AI. You'll have to guide it and really guide the machine learning, guide it, your objectives. Is it inventory? Is it profit maximization? It's a long-term value, different components that are out there. There's certain rules and boundaries, but it's really a way of thinking is, okay, open your mind to say, this is the way that you move on. You take and embody your brand, take and embody your experience, take and embody your components as you architect that, but also bring in the paradigm of here's AI that is going to make decisions. Is it going to be perfect? No, but it's going to learn. And the partner is going to work with you to build that part in there. And that's a new sort of technology that's there. And this is really from, we look at the, the experience part, just AI throughout supply chain is a lot of those components that are there, truly bringing in and embracing and empowering it and really committing to it is a big thing that I would say is, is the, everyone that looks at it and, and the Southwest Airline quote that goes in, the largest number possible to say, no, what does it really mean to go back and challenge their CIOs, go back and challenge their tech teams and say, all right, are we committing to it? How are we committing to it? What are the outputs? How are we going to measure that? And what's the impact that it's going to bring in? And by setting in those particular parts and putting in a framework, then a real modernization can get put in place and, and make a difference. And that's where 
we really look at it and we believe we're certainly betting on the retailers. We're betting that they'll do it. And we're seeing the ones that are doing that. So we want to see more. We definitely want to see more as well. Awesome. Well, gentlemen, thank you again so much for taking the time out to chat with me to dig into the research and extract some key takeaways and key findings. Again, it's a fascinating report. So I encourage everyone to check it out and see where they maybe stack up in terms of, you know, providing these experiences that today's customer demands. Brian Kilcores, Brian McGlynn, thank you again so much for taking the time out to join me today. Thank you very much. And to all of you, thank you for joining us. Again, please feel free to check out the report, get some more insights. And of course, if you have any follow-up questions for us, drop us a line in this feed on LinkedIn or on Twitter. We would love to keep this conversation going. But for now, enjoy the research and uh, we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Retail Remix. Be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. You can find us on your favorite podcast player. Until next time, keep mixing it up.